0: Hello and welcome to the Borderlines podcast, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian immigration law. I'm Stephen Mirrens. This week, Deanna and I are joined by Hilary Evans Cameron, an assistant professor at Ryerson's Faculty of Law. Prior to becoming a faculty member there, Hilary represented refugee claimants for almost a decade. She's the author of the book, Refugee Law's Fact-Finding Crisis, Truth, Risk, and the Wrong Mistake. She's also the author of several... Uh, papers on refugee law, and inc- the recent ones include The Analysis of Nonverbal Communication, The Dangers of Pseudoscience in Security and Justice Contexts, as well as Experimenting with Credibility in Refugee Adjudication, The GADAR, and the paper that prompted our discussion, a 2019 paper in Dalhousie Law Journal titled The Battle for the Wrong Mistake. Error preference and risk salience in Canadian refugee status decision making. Hillary's also created a website called Meet Gary, www.meetgary.ca, and this website provides an overview of what Hillary calls the six big ideas that can drive decision makers. I refer to them in the podcast as biases, implicit thoughts, or anchors, and I kind of use those terms interchangeably. But she calls them on her website the big six ideas. There's also a 12 things that have helped section, which uh, provides guidance to refugee claimants on suggestions or ways to overcome some of these anchored thoughts. Now, one thing I want to note is that Hillary in the podcast said that in uh, creating this website that she reviewed thousands of decisions and she wanted me to clarify that she meant hundreds. And in case you haven't been able to tell so far, the topic of today's podcast. Uh, is the unconscious or conscious biases, uh, implicit thought processes, anchor thoughts that can drive decision makers. So for example, in one that I mentioned briefly is um, studies that show that in the criminal sentencing, that in the period before lunch, a criminal sentence is likely to be higher than other periods during the day. Um, Hillary mentions in her paper that political notions about bogus refugees or Canada is a welcoming country can also be in the back of a refugee decision maker or really any immigration decision maker's mind and that 's what this podcast episode is about a exploration of kind of the hidden the hidden thoughts that decision makers might have and which may influence their decisions. Uh, I thought it was a fascinating. Discussion, and I hope you will too. Hillary's contact information is h. e v a n s c a m e r o n at ryerson. er r y e r s o n. ca, and you can find Deanna and my contact information on our uh, websites, uh, which you can easily access by searching our names. I hope you enjoy today's episode. <laughs>
1: What ended up being the subject of the book that I wrote was that we have two strong poles in the law. We have two strong um, senses of how a decision maker should make a fair decision in a refugee hearing. And they reflect the two kinds of mistakes that you might make if you were a decision maker. You you, You run the risk of accepting someone who should be rejected and you run the risk of rejecting somebody who should be accepted. And what I argue in the book is that at the level of the law, at the level of the federal court jurisprudence, uh, you can find support for a body of law, a body of legal theory that suggests that decision makers should preferentially avoid rejecting legitimate claims. In other words, they should err in favor of the claimant and make sure that the claimant gets the benefit of the doubt. And then there's a, a corresponding body of decisions that suggest the opposite, that This, you know, as in any civil process, as in any administrative process, the claimant is simply the applicant. They're the moving party. At the end of the day, they're there to make their case. And, you know, the the burden of proof should essentially fall against them, that they shouldn't benefit from the decision maker's doubts. And so in terms of, you know, what is motivating individual decision makers, I think that's a complex question. I think decision makers come in with all kinds of motivations and preconceptions and sort of human senses of how to judge. But at the level of the law, they're being told two conflicting things. So they're being told when in doubt, accept, and they're being told when in doubt, reject. And I think what that means practically is that as a decision maker, you can choose in any case for any reason which way you want your doubts to resolve. Uh, and I think that that ties right into Professor Rehag's work. I know you've had Sean on the program recently, and mm-hmm, I yeah. think every refugee lawyer in the country knows well his research into the the grant rates at the Refugee Board. I think when you see a system like ours that has vast disparities, in his words, um, it's it's to be expected. It's you know it's it's not it's you're not going to have a system that's more coherent than the law that governs it when you have a law that is this fundamentally inconsistent.
2: So this like this uh, unaddressed inconsistency you're saying it's that basically the law provides no clarity in terms of which one is supposed to be the correct methodology and is your view that that this this inconsistent or this disparity it's just that it's not recognized or it's known but it's just that there's been a decision made to not reconcile these two ideologies like how would you address that as a systemic issue
1: well i think part of it comes down to how hard it is to get up to the court of appeal you know our 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 question certification process is sort of a strange one you know we're mm-hmm. expecting a judge at the federal court to say you know, I'm a, I'm a judge, so a modest, humble person by nature. And I would really like one of my colleagues to review this decision, you know, on the chance that I'm wrong. <laughs> um, because I think I have the right answer. But you know, maybe I don't, I think that's, a, that's an ask. And so we don't see that happening a lot. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think that f- I don't think it's a secret, I meaning I think if you speak to most people who appear in court, most most refugee lawyers have a sense of, again, what Professor Rehag's research has demonstrated, which is that there are disparities in the bench. Um, I think that what, what I see when I look, and again, in the book, I look at 16 17,000 federal court decisions for, for how the judges are framing this question. And when I say that, the you know, what the law is doing with decision makers doubts and how decision makers should resolve their doubts, I think part of this, that's, it's important to sort of frame this up front is that you know, I think we all have this idea that decision makers are supposed to be neutral. We have that that blindfolded lady justice with her nicely balanced scales. But at the end of the day, no legal decision maker can ever be neutral and the law doesn't expect them to, right? Quite the opposite. Because burdens of proof, standards of proof, presumptions, what they're supposed to do is make sure that the decision maker, since they can't be in an equipoise situation, they have to err one way or the other. The whole fact-finding process is turning your doubts into a finding a fact. So you have to do something with that uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And so those questions of how certain do I have to be, you know, what do I do if I go in thinking ahead of time that I know that certain kinds of allegations are more likely to be true or not? What do I do at the end of the day if I don't know what to do? But those are the questions that the law is answering with its burdens of proof, standards of proof presumptions, and taken together all of those structures are supposed to be directing a decision maker to how to resolve their doubts. So which party and to what extent, you know, whether and to what extent a party should benefit from that doubt, and as as Steve you were mentioning earlier, the Blackstone's maxim in criminal law, right, is a classic example. Mm-hmm. So better ten guilty persons go free than one innocent one be convicted, is that idea that at the level of the legal theory, right? I mean, in in real life, of course, you know, courts treat any number of accused very badly, and some worse than others, right? But at the level of the legal theory, when it comes to that sort of fact finding process. The Crown's job is supposed to be much harder than the defense's. The Mm -hmm. burden of proof is very high. The Crown, of course, has the burden. There are very few presumptions that favor the Crown. Um, And all of that is by design. All of that is supposed to make sure that at the end of the day, jurors are resolving doubt in favor of the accused. And that's what we need in refugee law. And I say that that's what we have in at the level of the convention and at the level of the, you know, in the handbook and the convention, the drafters, you know, I think it's clear that that is what the International Refugee Law Program is designed to do. For sure. But at the level of the implementation, uh, the way that we are implementing it in Canada, uh, you can read it that way or you can read it in, in the opposite way.
2: I just, I mean, this is where I was going is that, um, you say that there is a certain amount of discretion and of course discretion in the, in the hands of the judiciary or in the, the hands of the, the administrative decision maker is, um, uh, it's supposed to be discretionary and, you know, and, and the, the points that you made about there being a neutral arbiter and all of that is, is points taken. But as you said, also in the criminal sphere, there's a lot of clarity in terms of how those kinds of ambiguous decisions are supposed to lean, and yeah. there really is a lack of that in respect of, of of the refugee process. And in fact, there is an inherent conflict, as you've indicated, between the clear messaging through the international conventions and uh, multiple conventions. Because I'm not just talking about the mm-hmm. refugee convention, but also yeah. like the Convention Against Torture and you know the Convention on the Child and all of that sort of thing. But when you look to the structure even just the basic structure of the refugee system, it seems very much the opposite. And so it's not an accident that this, this kind of, um, I don't know how you would describe it, but this, this conflict in the law has arisen because it's like, it's, it's based on this inherent conflict because I mean, um, I, I mentioned this sort of before we started recording is that like, when you start off a process with a removal order, Um, you know, Mm -hmm. it seems to me like, and then you work backward from there, you know, like, okay, we're going to order you to to be removed. And then we're going to make you kind of we're going to hold it until you've proven that you're entitled to actually have it quashed, like it almost sets it up. And when you've also systematically removed a humanitarian and compassionate request, because like, I mean, we can talk, and maybe this is where I'd like you to kind of go, because you talked about this at great length in your paper about, like, all of the Jason Kenny measures.
1: Mm-hmm. I understand
2: that, like, persecution is different than harm and hardship, but, like, when you think about it from the human, like, from the humane perspective, somebody might have suffered persecution And that's not the same thing as harm, but why you would make them make a commitment to one stream and not the other. And if they've made the wrong choice between harm and persecution, that they're, you know, they're, they're sunk, you know, because Mm -hmm, now the, mm -hmm. the remove. So, so maybe if you could just speak a bit more of that, like, because the conflict to me is, is built right in.
1: Yeah, no, fair enough. I mean, you know, again, coming back to, to my framing in the way that I, you know, I tend to see things now very much in terms of error preference, because that's the, that's the framework that now stands out to me so strongly when I look at the system. Um, you know, I mean, there are two potential errors, you know, here. I mean, there are two potential kinds of problem. And what I meaning that, you know, we might send somebody home to persecution. On the other hand, we might let somebody in who doesn't need protection. And what I saw, I think what we all saw play out in the Jason Kenney years was that Jason Kenney and sort of his his ilk were just really, really concerned with that latter kind of mistake. They were really very worried about the possibility of what Jason Kenney called bogus claimants. And they were so concerned about that possibility even though the his director general was quoted in the walrus said quote we, we never really had quantifiable information about how much fraud there was right? so they, they really you know it wasn't that this is the more worrying kind of mistake because it's happening all the time but right? they would sort of throw it out there as though it were happening all the time but even they admitted they didn't know how often it was happening it was just that there was something inherently so upsetting emotionally upsetting about being lied to frankly, and I think it really comes back to a lot of Jason Kenney's rhetoric around the laughing stock, you know, we're the laughing stock of the world because of our high grant rate. Um, These claimants are playing us, you know, they're playing us for fools, Um, you know. And I I always thought it was so ironic that out of one side of his mouth, um, Minister Kenney would say, we have the best refugee system in the world. You know, we have this phenomenal refugee system. He would always talk up the strength of the system. Um, and then he would point to other countries with much lower acceptance rates and say, see, look, other people are accepting so many fewer people. We're clearly we're getting it wrong because we have such a high grant rate compared to the rest of the world. <laughs> it's like maybe our exceptionally good system is getting it right. And everyone else is sending people home to persecution. You know, Why? Why would you assume that we're being taken for fools? You know, rather when on the basis of our high grant rate. Mm. Um so yeah I mean to the question of you know why why would we set it up this way why is our system set up the way it is I mean I think that there are I think there are sort of you know easy big picture answers to that like racism <laughs> like um, you know the fact that this is a that this is a closed system and we're you know we're we're protecting our way of life by keeping out the people who we benefit from oppressing I mean I think there are you know, I think that there were sort of no borders answers to that question, all of which I find very compelling. Um, But at the sort of systems level, um, you know, how is it that we have a system that is uh, as inconsistent as it is? I mean, I I think it's because we have never, I mean, our our federal court has never seriously looked at these questions. And I don't say that glibly. I mean, having looked through many thousands (laughs) or hundreds of federal court decisions, um, you know, I don't I think that the question of the standard of proof, for example, in refugee claim um, Mm -hmm. has been handled really in only a small handful of decisions and then really very much only with reference to civil law. Um, There are some judgments in which the court just says simply, well, of course, refugee claimants should have to prove their claim on a balance of probabilities, the facts of the claim on a balance of probabilities. That's, you know, don't you know, that's how civil law works. and I, you know, I've argued in the book, for example, that that yes, that, that is how civil law works, and it is a fundamental devastating mismatch in refugee law, because refugee law has a fundamentally different mandate. Right? Mm-hmm. These, this is a risk assessment process. Uh, if you make findings of fact based on a balance of probabilities, you distort your risk assessment. You, you know, you can't assess risk <laughs> if you first make findings of fact on a balance of probabilities. Um, and the, you know, the example I give for that in the book is that if you were out walking in the woods uh, you pick a mushroom you're trying to decide if you should eat this mushroom or not you know how dangerous is this mushroom and you think well it's probably a chanterelle and you're quite certain that chanterelles are safe if you use a fact-finding inductive traditional legal model then there's no risk at all to eating that mushroom because you think it's probably a chanterelle so it is one hundred percent that's now a fact right? and chanterelles are safe so you're fine if you're actually trying to assess risk it makes a real difference what probably Mm. means right is it like 51% probably or 99% probably if it's 51% probably a Chanterelle, you know maybe that's not good enough Mm -hmm. so um, I mean I, I think that we have we have put this risk assessment which is what a refugee claim is supposed to be inside a legal system that is typically, under almost all other circumstances, about assessing, you know, liability for past conduct or responsibility for past conduct. It's not about assessing a future risk the way that it is in a refugee claim. And, uh, you know, so I think that that's, it's a big part of the problem with what's going on here.
0: Yeah, Mm -hmm. coming back to the notion of maxims that you mentioned, um, and in your paper, which is, uh, we'll link to in the show notes, titled the battle for the wrong mistake risk salience and Canadian refugee status decision making. You talk about um, how there, yeah, under Jason Kenny uh, under his regime or when the time that he was minister, there was the focus on bogus refugee claims. You know, the all the reforms to the Refugee Act, even erecting signs in Hungary that were in Hungarian yeah. saying, "Do not come to Canada to make refugee claims." And you talked about how the board had a lower acceptance rate. And then fast forward to the Trudeau government there's very different messaging and the refugee acceptance rates have gone up Um, do you know if it's the same people just applying different maxims or is is the increase also possibly due to like different people being appointed to the board and I guess what I'm curious is like the maxim that someone has can it evolve and change over time and their approach risk salience does that change or is it pretty much not that you're born with it but like once someone has this anchor thought or this maxim that is important to them how do we have any data or studies on like how easy it is to change someone's fundamental approach to decision making
1: yeah that's a really good question and i I mean the short answer is there are certain aspects of our risk orientation that s- seem to be somewhat innate. So risk tolerance, risk aversion, uh, people tend to display a fairly consistent approach to risk across a variety of contexts. That's obviously a gross overstatement, but that's in the literature you, you find um, that th- there is a, people do tend to exhibit a stable tendency. Yeah. But that's a that's a different question. I think what you're asking here is is fairly nuanced, and it's a it's a really good question. I think I would say anecdotally, as refugee lawyers, we've probably all observed what I think we call the compassion bump. You know that in the first month or two of someone's mandate. Um, they're terrified by the risk of sending someone home. It's, mm. you know, it's it's overpowering and you can expect some positive decisions. And then the more you do it, um, the more jaded you get. And that's not, I mean, this is a generalization. There are some phenomenal members who've been doing it for years, but I know myself that I don't like being lied to. You know, I don't yeah. like the feeling that I'm being played for a fool. I think if I were a decision maker myself, you know, it wouldn't take long for that to start to seep in, you know, for me to start to really share the fear that somebody's going to pull one over on me. And I would be working very hard to try to uh, sort of put that kind of feeling in its place, you know, which to me means set it aside, you know, do the work to recognize it, recognize that it has the potential to motivate my decision making um, and get around it if necessary by saying in the decision, I don't, Think I believe you? You know, I don't think you're telling me the truth, but I don't have a solid legal basis for that conclusion. You know, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt as I've been legally instructed to do. Um, you know, but I'm looking at you. You're looking at me, and just so you know, I, you know, I'm not convinced. Uh, you know, I would probably try to protect my own ego that way. Um, but, you know, t- does it change? I mean, I, you know, I don't know. I'd love to know. I'd love to, I'd love to know from decision makers if they have any insight into their own experiences that would tell them that they've changed over time. Mm. My, my concern, to be totally honest, Stephen, is less with changes over time than it is with strategic decisions in particular cases. Mm. Right? So if you have these two bodies of law available to you, you might shift over time. You might have a stable preference for one or the other, but, you know, but you also might be tempted to put a particular claimant in a particular obstacle course, you know, and say, you're going to run the harder course today. Um, you know, the guy yesterday got yeah. easy the easier course simply because I don't like your face, you know, or for more troubling uh, systemic mm-hmm. bias reasons.
0: Although the, I don't like your face thing gets into a whole other issue um, that I want to talk about as well, which I'm, I'm leaping around a bit, but when, and I'm sure we've all had it where you learn what, motivated a decision. So I'll give an example which was a few years ago I did a spousal sponsorship appeal at the IRB and we went for ADR and my client, who was uh, the sponsor was India but then immigrated here was a permanent resident, explained his situation to the hearings officer. The hearings officer granted the uh, appeal. my client was overjoyed and on the way out the hearings officer told me, you know what really, Uh, set your client apart was that he spoke English fluently and we get so many people who've lived here for you know (laughs) five plus years who don't speak English and it was just great to see your uh, your client speak English fluently Um, and I don't know if we would have won that appeal if he hadn't has nothing to do with the test but it was the little um, it was what to this hearings officer was the grounding or at least mm-hmm. a grounding um, principle. Maybe the hearings officer didn't mean to imply that that was a deciding factor. It's just that's how it came off. Mm, yeah. um, and it's those little things. Yeah. Like when you said <laughs> you don't like the way they look, that was another, yeah. you know, and this, this something completely irrelevant was. Mm-hmm. What ground, you know what that what makes what me, me
1: think, Steve? Honestly, I had, I had a client years ago, young, young kid. I mean, she's probably 17 when she came to me and she was just this bubbly you know, like delightful bubbly kid who'd been through hell and back. But, you know, had this really sunny disposition. Mm. Um, and on the day of her hearing, she got a positive decision from this very difficult board member. And afterwards, you know, making that awkward small talk in the, in the hallway, walking out, you know, client had gone ahead. I was walking and talking to the board member and he said, you know, counsel, I, you know, I knew coming into the hearing this morning that I was going to give your client a positive decision because I passed her in the waiting room and saw her sitting there by herself. And she just looked so sad and scared and alone. And I just thought this woman's been through, you know, horrors and i I just, you know, I knew in that moment that she was genuine and I thought, God, you should have seen her, you know, you should have seen her in the subway this morning. She was a laugh riot, you know, and Mm -hmm. and then from, no kidding, from that day on, I warned all of my clients, like, stop smiling at the door at 74 Victoria Street in Toronto. You know, whatever you do, you know, don't, don't, don't look happy.
0: (laughs) but this well, is <clears> one <throat> claim shouldn't look at no, just mm-hmm. <laughs> well but um, this
1: is but... really the
2: um, it goes back to me to the question of um, uh, the neutrality question and also sort of um, feeds into this um, conversation that we had uh, with Sean with professor Rehag about credit credibility is that um, that decision makers are still humans and this whole notion of, you know, there's no concrete factors that we can say, like, this is what, like, what is credibility? You know, are there things that we can check off on a checklist that this makes something believable? But we each have our own programming in terms of like, well, these are the things that we can say this This means that what I'm being told is true. But we have all our own individual triggers that, you know, when I see something that makes me feel like I'm being told a truth. And I don't think that these are immutable signals that are like, okay, well, this means I'm being told a truth. Those are personal Mm -hmm. and individual, and they're created by our own human experience. Mm -hmm. And so, Mm -hmm. what might trigger Um, a negative credibility finding in that decision maker has as much to do about the decision maker as it does about the claimant. And so sometimes I've sat in refugee hearings, and I've heard, you know, testimony, and then I've seen a negative credibility finding like you've talked about situations where they've been told to their face that they're not telling the truth. But I've also seen scenarios where I've heard like very credible testimony. I'm like, you did a great job. And then you hear a negative credibility assessment that just flummoxes you because mm-hmm. I didn't hear anything that mm-hmm. led me to believe that this was a non-credible claim. And so nice. just how do you quant like how do you deal with that? Um, yeah. just the personal factor. And you know, um, and you know, I know yeah. that you talked about um, in some of our communication before, like you know, the the individual, the individuation of those kind of credibility assessments, which nobody can apologize for, because that's just, we are all humans, even as adjudicators.
1: And so, um, yeah, you know, it's such a good question. When I, when I started doing academic work, you know, over a decade ago, I, I started with the, I started pulling together articles that looked at risk perception and risk response. And I was doing it because I was one body of, of, really troubling findings that I was seeing in the hearings were some version of if you were really afraid, you wouldn't have acted like this. Right? <laughs> if you were really afraid, you would have left at yep. the first opportunity. You would never have gone home. You would have made your claim right away. Uh, you know, and I figured that there had to be. And in fact, there, you know, at this point, there is so There's about 70 years worth of solid social science looking at risk response. You know, that just makes the point that our responses are so variable right that they're really you know we we are not rational actors we don't have no we don't take well, look at reliable stockholm steps.
2: syndrome like it's look not at COVID,
1: right I mean, look at the variety and responses to COVID. 100 in, right in, in the same city so i mean we know that i i the second body of evidence that i went to look into was memory and sort of regular non-traumatic everyday memory right again because i i felt like i was seeing a lot of very unscientific findings, I mean, you know, findings that went sort of directly against the best available social science, like you would remember the dates right? If you were assaulted, you'd remember the date when it happened. There's a famous study from the 80s that researchers went and checked of the people that they were interviewing who could, you know, who re- uh, reported assaults to the police. More than a quarter were off. They got the dates wrong. Right? So, I mean, we know people don't reliably remember the dates of their assaults. We know all of this. But anyway, point is I was, I was pulling all of this together because I was s- sort of going after the areas where I thought there were sort of cheap and easy negative credibility findings waiting to happen. Right. And I was trying to make those more difficult. I was trying to make them more complex, more nuanced, you know, and say to the board members, you you have to deal with this kind of complexity if you're going to make a negative finding for the, for this kind of reason. And the when I started sort of eventually having conversations with board members um, about this, the answers were often some version of, okay, I get it, you know, you don't want want me to use this factor, you don't want me to use that factor, well, then what do I use? You know, what are the red flags that allow me to conclude that somebody's lying? Um, In other words, I know they're lying, so how do I say it? (laughs) You know, my point is, that's not the answer. (laughs) You know, you don't, it's it's not that you've decided that someone's lying and you have to find the right legal explanation to hang it on. Um, You need a good Reason to conclude that someone's lying, or you don't conclude that they're lying. It, so it was sort of like I was taking all their toys away, and they're saying, "Well, then, how am I going to do my job?" And I'm going to do your job by rejecting fewer people. You're right. going to do your job by not writing negative decisions in the cases where they can't be supported. Right. You know, um, and so uh, to me, it it does come back always to those questions of burden of proof and error of precedence, and you know how how we structure our decision making. Mm. Um, you know, and I, I, f- I, feel like at the end of the day, as a decision maker, asking yourself, "Do I believe this person?" is the wrong question, right? It, it ultimately doesn't matter, right? It, the question is, uh, is do you have a reasonable ground to dismiss their evidence? Right. In other words, do do you have a solid legal basis to displace that presumption? Because they're presumed to be telling the truth. Right. Do you have a solid legal basis to, to displace it? And when I talk to board members, I mean, one of the things that I will say is, I get that you want to make the right decision. I, like I, I would too, right? You want to get it right. The studies on credibility assessment are not very encouraging, right? There's a, a couple recent meta studies about 10 years ago, looked at hundreds of studies, looking at thousands of senders and receivers in all kinds of different contexts. And I mean, the upshot is about 54 to 56% accuracy rate uh, for people making credibility assessments under circumstances like these. So without machines, without special training in a, in a live action kind of context, you know, in real time, um, we're slightly better than a coin toss. And that's without all of the other factors that are confounding refugee status decision-making like trauma, like cross-cultural issues, like interpretation, I mean, all of it. Right. right. So what I started to say to the board members is, look, the bad news is you're going to get it wrong a lot and you're not going to know um, and you're probably going to be overconfident because we know that people right. don't get better with time. So the more experienced credibility assessors are no better than the less experienced ones. There's That's studies hard. looking at, you know, veteran police officers compared to college students who are not any more successful, but they are much more confident. So mm. you're probably going to think you're getting it right. You're probably going to be getting it wrong. The only silver lining is that the law, in fact, doesn't ask you to get it right. The law is asking you to make a reasonable decision. Right. And getting it right is neither necessary nor sufficient. If you get it right, but you don't have a reasonable basis, if you happen to flip the coin and get, you know, land on the right side, you know, you may be you may be right that this person's lying. If you don't have a solid legal basis, your decision isn't legal. Um, You know, and conversely, if you do have a solid legal basis and you make a solid legal finding... Uh, and you get it wrong I think you get to sleep well at night having done as good a job as you can if it's a reasonable decision and here's where I, Professor Rihag so Sean and I have you know taken slightly different tacks on this I think we end up in the same place which is that you know Sean's position and I think he was discussing it here um, you know about a year ago uh, is that we ought to be saying to decision makers make all of your biases explicit I put it all on the record yeah um,
2: that's right. which
1: I, I, I don't disagree with I think it's it's just very hard for people to do Mm. you know my sense was as long as you've done that work you can do that work behind the scenes write the decision um, you know my my hope is that having done that work um, you will then be able to write a decision where you've Recognized enough of your own biases that they don't make it in. I, I guess I think we're 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 equally optimistic, I guess, or lack of, uh, you know, pessimistic. Sean and I both that uh, decision makers will be able to do that work. Right. Um, but at the end of the day, it is about that self reflective piece. It's about being able to sort of think through for yourself, what's actually motivating you.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'll say my jury's still out on whether they need to be explicit or if they can be implicit, because I I can see there are challenges to making them explicit because, um, you know, in a way, I don't know how much of that we need to know about in a way if that's sort of like your own personal um, fodder, but I, I do, I think it's brilliant what you're saying about um, it's something. I mean, this this whole notion of the risk salience, and um, you know, if we recognize that within the refugee scheme, and given the commitments that Canada has made in the international context, that like we need to make some kind of a social contract. Like this is where we, as a society, are going to say we would rather err on this side rather than on that side, and we have comfort with that. And like, yeah, um, this is you know, this is where I'd rather go. And it's it sort of making me mindful of a, a case that I've been working, i worked on within the last year, where it was like, you have, you can have, I mean, it just sort of really made super clear to me this kind of, um, this, this sort of scenario, um, dealing with somebody from, from Somalia, who came to Canada as a young person, and we could prove all of the family members were deceased um he left as a young person and then went through a period of major sort of like post traumatic um drug addiction right mm-hmm. and the 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 memory is like just gone like it's not just that it's fa- flawed it's it's yeah. gone and so um and so Again, when you have these basic facts, came from Somalia as a young person, then went through a period of like, and there's like these little glimmers of flashbacks that come from time to time. Like, how much more do you need to know? Right. Yeah. You know, and isn't there a do no harm policy here? Do you really need to put this person through like psychological rigor and like, please tell me, you know, give me the details because like maybe you could get a bit more and Do we need to do testing here really (laughs) you know yeah this is the kind of thing you know and so um you know and so to me in terms of that like risk salience and social contract like just come on i think there's got to be like i understand these legal tests and this process but um it just sort of really emphasized and this it it goes back to me to like your meet gary thing and about this whole you know, um, the six big ideas, like a memory is like a video recording. And just when I read that, I was like, yes, you know, like <laughs> the memory is not a video mm. recording. And the idea of putting it through this vigor, not only can you not reasonably expect a truly traumatized brain to bring a video recording memory, like read any, um, any evidence on neuroplasticity, like it just, right. it's not, it's not, it can't be borne out. Yeah. But also, like, it's yeah. about this, like, read the international conventions, like, we're supposed to be doing no harm by this process,
1: right? Right. Yeah. Yep. I don't know,
2: you just put it yep. so nicely there. It was just like, it was so <laughs> obvious, you know?
1: Well, <laughs> I also, I really like what you're saying about the social contract. I like that piece of it, too. I think it's so important. And I think, you know, sometimes when I'm out and talking to people about this who aren't refugee lawyers or aren't in the refugee law scene, it, you know, they it sounds sort of bizarrely, naively generous when I say we should presume claimants are telling the truth, which by law we should. You know, they're they're just, they're surprised that we have a law that presumes the claimants are telling the truth. Um, You know, and we should give them the benefit of the doubt and the, you know, the the decision makers should resolve that in their favor. And they, you know, they they respond as though this were bizarrely, naively generous. Mm. And then I I think, yes, but we extend the same courtesy daily to rapists and murderers and thieves. (laughs) You know, we have a social contract that allows us Yeah, Um, to see the upside of that kind of generosity in that kind of context. That's
2: right. You know,
1: what is it about our? You know, what is it about the social contract that doesn't yet allow us to say that to refugee claimants?
0: In your conversations with people, has anyone articulated what the fear is? Like, given that we are a country that has (laughs) oceans as borders, a really good question Steve. I love it. Yeah, where it's oceans as borders, the United (laughs) (laughs) States. Um, like yeah you know well, in had, theory I, the United States could flood us with refugees but like <laughs> historically even at the height of a government where you know that could have happened it wasn't I mean the numbers were up but it wasn't huge so what is is it just an armada of boats that people have mentioned to you or what is the concern I
1: think people are very worried about boats Boats in particular. Audrey Macklin has pointed this out. The boats seem to push buttons in a, in a certain way. Um, I mean, one of the emails that I got after one talk was, um, why is it always, always women who are hell-bent on destroying Western civilization? <laughs> so I like that one because I thought, you know, that's an interesting question. We should, we should come back to that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think there, you know, there, there are some fairly, um, you know, profoundly existential fears that get triggered. Mm. And
2: even the one about, like, the economic drain stuff, like, because I think I would love, and I don't know if, I mean, I should know this, whether or not people have done studies on, like, outcome measurements of refugee claimants, like, maybe not in one year or two years, but, like, in 10 or, like, next year. we've talked about this.
0: You need to go to StatsCan. They have stats on everything. Okay, like, yeah, little... I know. We have talked about
2: this. I have an attention, like, span. <laughs> doesn't last for this long. But, like, like, don't like, it just strikes me as so obvious that, that this ends up becoming the most constructive, invested, um, productive group of Canadians, you know, like, I just, I think that this, this, this fear, it's very emotional, as you said, Um, it's not a, um, you know, it's not a, uh, it's an emotional fear. I mean, that's it. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. No, it's, I mean, it, you know, it is a very salient fear to lots of people. You know, I think that that's you know I I I don't I don't know much I don't know much of the broader um, sort of political science sociology literature. There is a you know migration studies is a fantastic field, um, and I have some close friends who are migration scholars. But I know it is it's something that's gotten a lot of attention. You know especially what kinds of factors influence um, how people how welcoming people are willing to be. Um, to, to newcomers of all kinds, refugees, but also immigrants. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I guess it's you know it is sometimes, you know, sometimes in the work that I'm doing, some of the pushback that I get is, um, you know, you, you know, you just want to throw open our borders. You know, you just you you know, you're not interested. And I mean, the, the truth is, frankly, um, I think that the borders are indefensible. Um, but at the end of the day. Um, Blackstone's maxim hasn't emptied our jails. You know, we still convict people. So, you know, whether I want to throw open our borders or not, uh, you know, isn't really the point. I mean, our, you know, you can resolve doubt in structurally in favor of refugee claimants, uh, and it only comes into play when decision makers are in doubt. And at the end of the day, many decision makers at the end of that three-hour hearing are going to think that they know enough about this claimant to decide. So they won't be in a position where they're sort of having to grapple with how to resolve their doubts. They're just going to say, no, I'm quite certain that this person's lying and they'll be wrong about half the time. Mm. Um, you know, so it's it's not a radical suggestion. You know, this is not a, a radical solution. Um, but what it would do is, um, you know, if, if we had a coherent sense of what the right mistake was and the wrong mistake was, and if it were enforced and emphasized and just sort of given the attention in refugee law that it's given in criminal law, Um, you know, at most it might help to reduce some of that disparity in the in the grant rates, you know, at least it might encourage board members to make more similar findings and on average more positive findings.
0: And there are processes, I mean, the process like part of the what's interesting about the refugee process is if it is discovered afterwards that a person lied, it can be vacated. Right. Um, there's also the cessation rules, which have their own set of problems that I you know, won't get into too much beyond saying that if someone does go back to their country of origin, um, Canada's refugee system views it as a bit of a, whoa, shouldn't do that. Um, and so there are also uh, processes to post-grant address issues where someone may have, uh, where it becomes clear that someone did lie in their refugee claim. Mm Yeah, that's true. So as a, I just want to go quickly through the, the meet Gary, Mm. the six big ideas that can guide people. Um, And I think as I read this, people will think of other maxims or, he come back to the word anchor, just like different principles that people have that a decision maker may be aware of. Because I think we can all think of decisions um, where we did see one of these factors play out or some other maxim. So the first we've talked a bit. Can we just
2: say though first like what is Meet Gary and how did this come about and like just so that uh, people that don't don't have the chance to click through just
1: understand why it's there and what it's for. Sure, yeah. Perfect. So it's, it's, it's a website with an a, a, a animated bear. <laughs> um, and it's supposed to give refugee claimants and the people who help them, so they're shelter workers and uh, people who don't necessarily have a legal background, but who are trying to help refugee claimants sort out the system, try to give them a sense of why a refugee claimant might be disbelieved. So what is it that might raise those red flags for a board member? Um, and I mean, partly this is this came about because I, I had all of this research that I wanted to share with claimants. I had, you know, I've, I've just I finished a study about a year ago, reading um, about three hundred RPD decisions and s- sort of coding them for the kinds of reasons the board members were giving for for denying claims. Um, and, you know, so I, I I wanted to use some of that research, but also, I mean, there's a there's a an effect in psychology that's called the illusion of transparency, which is this idea that we tend to think that we can be read more easily than we can. Mm. So for truthful people, it's that idea that the truth will shine through. Mm. So you've probably had it happen with your clients as well. You know, you start to work with the client to prepare them for the hearing and they say, well, why is this necessary? I'm telling the truth. Totally. You know, right? Like I'm I'm just going to go in and tell the truth. Do we need to do this? Because I'm just going to tell them the truth. Mm-hmm. Um You know, they think that, you know, you only need to work through the story if you're going to try to fudge it somehow. And so claimants, I think, are often just simply completely blindsided, completely, completely blindsided by the skepticism and the suspicion and by the kinds of things that end up undoing their claim. They just they don't see it coming.
2: And they feel very bamboozled, too. And it's that thing where um, and people talk about it as re-traumatizing. And that is certainly the effect. But I think that. Um, the bamboozling, and also the um, the not having any, and I think very uh, um, not every um, lawyer or representative prepares people for that, and I think right. that that can be very disorienting.
1: Yeah, no, for yeah. sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that so that was the idea behind me, Gary, That's was amazing. to try to give some of that information directly to claimants, in case also, as you say, in case their lawyers don't.
0: Mm-hmm. I would also recommend recommended. That- to any uh, immigration lawyer or consultant to read because I think it has good ideas that you can then apply in practice in preparing almost any type of application if you adjust some of the words. So there's six big ideas and 12 things that have helped. I want to first focus on the six big ideas. The first, a memory is like a video recording. So we've talked a little bit about this in the refugee context already, but it applies also in the well, especially in the spousal sponsorship context, where when mm-hmm. you get to an interview, it's like, yeah. if you don't have a photogenic memory of the entire history of your relationship, um, there's a presumption, not a presumption. Well, some officers might have the presumption that their marriage is fake.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: right. And I think like, I've had situations where I've been in a uh, spousal sponsorship interview where questions are. What color are your bed sheets? Where does your partner yeah. leave your keys, or where does the yeah. partner leave the keys? And
1: yeah, um, no, my partner and I would never be believed. We've been together for twelve years. So we'd never, yeah, be. yeah. Oh, anyone. and the, <laughs> uh, when they, there's
0: charts about the like, you know, what are the names of all of your spouse's uh, aunts or uncles? Why were they previously divorced? And there's this expectation that uh, this is, and that people will remember just uh, everything about what they've spoken with their. Uh, partner though you got the postal i've seen where they didn't know the sponsor's postal code
1: oh my goodness
0: and you know i don't even remember like i still sometimes have to look up i'm double check what's my own postal code (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, the second one we've talked about safety at any cost which is that in the refugee context someone will make the they will do everything they can to keep themselves safe they will never take unnecessary risks um the third which I think is a big one, is once a liar, always a liar. And so Gary, the hypothetical decision maker, believes there are two kinds of people, honest people and dishonest people. person who has tried to deceive him is dishonest. There's no reason for him to believe anything that a dishonest person says. And I think we see this manifest in two other ways that I want to touch on, which is the first is whether decision-makers have a tendency, if someone's had previous TRV refusals or application refusals, is there a tendency amongst decision-makers to say, well, either I or somebody else have always refused this person, mm-hmm. why are they back? Mm-hmm. And we even have a whole legal principle on res judicata that like, the law almost presumes, like, why are they back? We've already decided this. Right. Um, but then do you think that there is ever the risk and i'm kind of asking this rhetorically that someone say will have a situation where as hillary you were saying they've been lied to and they think never again and they start attributing okay i had a afghani refugee claimant lie to me i need to start looking at my afghani refugee claimant files more strictly And I can give an example where it happened. Like I remember the first time and actually the only time where after representing um, people in arranged marriages for years, I had a Canadian um, sponsor call me and basically in tears say that it was a forced marriage. And I sat back after the call, I had to go through the steps to get off the file and all that. But I sat back after and thought, you know, what have I been involved with? Like, what have I been (laughs) facilitating? Um, And it took me like, do, do I want the, and I sat back and thought, should this change how I approach things? Should I, you know, like try to flag stuff like this earlier? And it took me a while to say, okay, you know, okay. That was one file. I can't let that possibly prejudge um, how I interact with others. Maybe I can learn a few things from it, but I think there is this natural tendency of once you've been hit with something like that, that there is this Mm -hmm. never again perspective that you flagged earlier in terms of, I've been lied to once, I get jaded. Um, How do you think you avoid that as it, is it just stepping back? Is it that Sean Rehag writing out, like if you you actually write out what you're thinking, okay, now I need to take a step back. Now that I see it on paper, maybe it doesn't make sense to hold these biases.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think all of that is, uh, you know, probably the best we can do. I mean, the, it's that self-awareness. I mean, barring, sorry, the best we can do barring a system like the system we used to have with two decision makers. I mean, the, the, you know, the systemic answer to that is don't leave it in one person's hands. And an appeal isn't the answer to that either. Right. I mean, the systemic answer is you have two decision makers and the tie goes to the claimant, which is what we used to have. I, you know, I get it's twice as expensive, you know, understand that that's why it went. Um, but, you know, as long as you have a single person making that decision, uh, then, yeah, I think the most you can hope for is that that person will be self aware enough to be able to see that in themselves and to be able to account for it. You know, whether it's sort of putting it in the final decision and sort of admitting to it for the world to see, um, or whether it's admitting to it for yourself and. Doing what you can to try to ensure that it doesn't affect your judgment and then giving the judgment the sort of clean version. Um, I think the essential step there is that you've done the work of trying to be honest with yourself about what's motivating you. And I don't have full faith in that process by any stretch. I think the literature on debiasing interventions of all kinds doesn't, doesn't give us grounds for you know, any sort of sense that this is a silver bullet, I think it clearly isn't. Um, I do think it's the best we can do. I mean, I think it's I think it's essential, and I think it'll make a difference sometimes. You know, it's a harm reduction model, uh, but we're still going to be left with a single decision maker holding people's lives in their hands.
0: Yeah, the system does. It's interesting to bring up, like, the, the way that cost plays a factor in this. Like, we don't have two decision makers, um, certain... Even at the IRB, like they try to, in order to streamline things, like the immigration division, for whatever reason, can't consider humanitarian and compassionate factors. That's only the immigration appeal division and just stretching things out to streamline. Even in the criminal justice sense, I'm sure some of our listeners in that background, like we have the maxim that uh, it's better that, you know, five guilty people go free than one innocent person go to uh, jail. Um, and in theory, all decisions are made by a judge or a jury. But then that process has been streamlined into plea bargaining, and mm-hmm. a massive pressure mm-hmm. to like, let's get this resolved quickly, right. without using judicial resources where, in a way, the plea bargain system turns the whole maxim on its head where it's like, right. well, it's yeah. better to plea to something small than to try to argue that I'm innocent on something um, big. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, absolutely. The other three factors on Gary is a perfect match. So the, I mean, across the immigration spectrum, it's like, oh, the cookie cutter uh, scenario where someone feeds neatly into the square hole. Like here's what I view an ideal refugee claim or a work permit support letter to be, and this just fits neatly. And once it's not there, it's why, you know, why is this person different? our expectations were clear is something to watch for the another way to reword this in the immigration context would be it's on our website so you should clearly know about it (laughs) what do you mean like our requirements are all up there yeah Um,
1: for for, if i can cut in here for a second in the refugee system i have a paper um under review that i hope will come out about this that where i see this one in particular is with omissions from the basis of claim form for sure yeah so it's uh it's just a huge issue. It was In the study that I did, I was looking, like I said, at about 300 rejections, so 300 negative decisions. In about half of them, one of the factors cited was an omission from the book. And the inference is, if it had really happened to you, you would have written it down. And the reason you would have written it down is because you would have read the very clear instructions. And the very clear instructions are, include everything, right? So the box mm-hmm. says, include all important information. And what claimants say is, I thought I was being asked to provide a summary because I knew I was going to come into a hearing and have a three hour chance, four hour chance to talk to you about it. And on the BOC form, where I'm being asked to provide all important information, I get you know 10 lines <laughs> per question and then a little line at the bottom that says, oh, if you need more paper, you know, you can add it, right? with the implication that you should be able to say in 10 lines why you're afraid to go back, for example. Yeah. Um, Right. So it's, you know, the idea that um, the idea that this instruction, right, the instruction include everything important that happened to you. Hmm. Right. Board members say over and over again in the decisions that I was looking at, this is a very clear instruction. It's like, yeah, it's clear, but it's nonsensical. Right? Yeah. It's clear, yeah. but it doesn't make any sense. Explain at all. the
2: last five years of your life on this piece of paper, you know, in f-
1: 10 lines or more yeah. if you need it. Right. And, uh, you know, and then they keep coming back to, well, you swore it was true, right? You swore the statement was true and complete. It's like, yeah, because what, you know, what does that jurat mean? When we make people swear, I'm going to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. What we mean is don't lie to us and don't omit things with the intention of deceiving. In other words, don't omit mm-hmm. something that can mislead me. Mm-hmm. Right? So, uh, you know, a, a guilty omission, like I'm hiding it by not putting it in the box, is what that jurat's about, you know, you you can't possibly, you know, I can swear to tell you everything that I recognize is important, but I can't meaningfully swear to tell you everything that you recognize is important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That can't be what that means.
2: Uh, But also for for people that haven't gone through the refugee process, the types of subtlety that get called an inconsistency and a bock is like oh so you got on the bus and then this happened oh no you've given us the wrong sequence well you know um it's it's sometimes like it's so subtle the distinction that they're they're drawing where it's like well no it's, it's like you could read it either way truly but it's just um you know it's a very literal interpretation of those wordings and that will then be kind of cited as being an inconsistency when in fact, you could truly read it either way. And so, and I understand that they're like, okay, well, the interpretation, you know, but it's, it's just a letter, a level of subtlety that um, um, to me, it's almost robotic perfectionism that they are looking to that. um,
0: Or they're just, um, as Hillary mentioned earlier, they're kind of working backwards from the outcome. mm -hmm. And so like an example that uh, I remember from a judicial review of a spousal sponsorship appeal refusal was they asked the sponsor what she does in the morning. And she says, you know, I get up, I have a shower, uh, breastfeed the baby, make breakfast, go to work. And they asked the applicant, oh, what does your uh, wife do in the morning? Gets up, has a shower, eats breakfast, go to work. And the decision, which was based on questioning from the hearings officer was, well, he didn't mention that she breastfeeds the baby, Therefore, there's a discrepancy. He doesn't know what's going on in his wife's life. Right. And it's like, I think we can assume that he doesn't, He like, he knows that she's not letting the baby starve. So it's <laughs> like, it's like, but it's that type of thing where you read it and you think, okay, this must be working backwards.
2: Mm-hmm. Because
0: I just, I don't believe that somebody will start from that. Whoa, ho, ho, I was going, like, I just, I think it is a lot of working backwards there.
1: Yeah. I mean, if I could say, you know, one of the things that we we can see about credibility assessments in again in the in the in the lie detection and deception literature is that often very often they're quick snap judgments they're largely intuitive we may have very little insight into why we make them Mm -hmm. so my sense is that you know I read some of these decisions and I'm tempted to conclude that they were consciously reverse engineered you know I read some of them and I think you know as well as I do that that's you know you know that that's not why you disbelieve this person but I think there are many others where they probably, you know, it may be a process of I am struck very strongly by the fact that I don't believe this claimant, and -hmm. then everything I see is colored in that light, you know, which is why this person's two-week delay in claiming seems very suspicious to me, although I've accepted, you know, 10 claims in the last three weeks from people with two-week delays in claiming. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think some of the inconsistency is that it's reverse engineered, but it may not be consciously reverse engineered.
2: But I was going to ask you about that specifically. Would you put delays in claiming as part of the our expectations were clear?
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, that. You know, that's part of to me, I would put that in the risk category in the sort of safety costs, because the the underlying inference there is that you were in danger. And the only way to stay safe is by claiming. And I've just read through, I'm doing this again, a study with these decisions that I'm coding and, you know, the number of decisions, not many, but I mean, enough to be concerning in which the decision makers are saying, this to people who had uh, temporary status when they yeah, got here. Yeah, I don't school.
2: understand that one at all. Just, like if right. you have a work permit, why do you feel that you need to make a refugee claim if you thought you had a
0: Especially because work permit you to, make to permanent resident? Especially because once you make that claim, you completely close off exactly. all the That's other right. path. Like, Okay, a that risk. one
1: makes yeah. perfect sense. Okay, I risk. get it. There's
0: I mean, yeah. yeah but a even people, I mean, risk, but...
1: there's some good federal court uh, language around people who are living underground because they think it's safer. You know, there's one great decision. I think it was Justice Russell who said, why would anyone ever make a refugee claim if they felt that they were more likely to be deported as a result? This is someone in the U.S. at a time when you could live underground with a very slight chance of ever being caught and your refugee claim had a very slight chance of succeeding. So why in the world would anyone ever do it?
2: Not to mention that you're subjecting yourself to this system of like... Ex, like, um, voluntary interrogation
1: right.
2: by members of the, like, people people of authority, you know, when you've just extracted yourself from, yeah. you know, as, you know, um, yeah, I think yeah. I made my point, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, no, for sure. Um,
2: I don't know if you were, I think you had one more to to do, Steve. Oh, it was just that that uh, Canada's
0: a great country, so therefore it might actually work against um, everyone from refugee claimants to visa applicants because there's a presumption that since Canada is so great, why would anyone want to leave or people will try to come here by any means?
1: Including lying
0: fraud. Including lying fraud. Um, and
1: also that when you get here then it's a big party, but right? then you're just so delighted to be here. So if you're a, a gay or lesbian claimant or buyer or so diverse,
0: right. um, yes.
1: you know, why weren't you at the Pride Parade? Why aren't you yes. taking full advantage of this, you know, really fun social scene? And it's like right. you know, claimants were like, Look at I'm traumatized. I don't want to date, I just wanna be, you know, by myself for a while.
2: Why you haven't know, you come out to everyone in your why social haven't circle? you yeah. Yeah. You're in
1: Canada now? Don't you know you're in Canada now? You can you can live freely now. Why aren't you living freely now?
2: Right. Right, like, of course. Like, that's a traumatized
1: mess.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But also, just like letting your personal self catch up with all of that. Like, it's not yeah. like your psyche is all of a sudden, you know, jive to the fact that you're in a safe place, of course. Um, the thing that I wanted to say, like going through the six big ideas, is that every single one of them fundamentally jars against trauma theory, like in mm. a very basic, mm-hmm. obvious, like, way. Um, And so this sort of dovetails right into the like 12 things that have helped, which is also on the Meet Gary website, which I find fascinating, because in some ways, like, it seems to me those 12 things that have helped, you can be sort of funneled into two different groups. One of them is trying to say, hey, this goes fundamentally against trauma theory. And the other group is just play along you know (laughs) and Mm -hmm. I always struggle with the like just play along part because in some ways you kind of just play along you know like okay so yes you have ptsd because if you like pretty much as a refugee practitioner every single client that you have has ptsd like and if you know um and so it's some. I mean, this is sort of the, the the conundrum for anybody who's practicing in this area is that, like, okay, I understand that you have PTSD, but memorize your book. <laughs> you <know? laughs>
1: yes, totally. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Setting that aside for a minute, here's yes. what you have to do.
2: <laughs> so, um, so there's those ones, and then there is the other ones that are like, and if all else fails. Um, you know, and there's a whole section on here, but like use social science evidence. And I, of course, like I'm going to like glom through every single piece of material that you've got through to make sure that I haven't missed any because like that's like an incredibly important resource on your site. Well,
1: Um, Jenna, I'll just say, you know, for copyright reasons, the only things I could post to my own. So there is, in fact, a lot more social science out there. Yes, of course. And, and uh, you know, I'll just make a pitch that for anybody who happens to be on the refugee lawyers association listserv, I have, a, I have, I can give access through my Ryerson um, archive essentially to RLA members any any RLA member who's looking for a specific social science journal article just email me Okay, I can amazing. send it to you I can do that for RLA members through the through Ryerson's library
2: okay that's great often you yeah. can find them
1: online you just can't get at them if you're not behind the paywall
2: but I guess I guess first of all my question is like um so so let me start by asking like Um, At what point did you stop actually practicing before the board and start going into the academic field?
1: I started going into, well, I sort of fell into academia backwards, frankly, as I was practicing, Mm. uh, because I started pulling together the evidence that I wanted the decision makers to see. And that's what ended up becoming the, the first papers. And then as decision makers among others were pushing me to sort of look at well then how do you want me to make these decisions exactly. if I can't make these cheap and easy decisions how do you want me to do them and then that was sort of what pushed me into looking at more of the legal framings um but I tried to do both <laughs> for a while I, yeah exactly both, and then I had to decide at one point when you know and jump ship for the for the ivory tower but um you know, so I, I guess my, my question <laughs> is
2: like is is it like is is the board listening to this social science evidence, and um, how is that working? Basically, is what I'm asking you.
1: Yes, yeah. I mean, the short answer is I yes. I mean, I'm 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 very encouraged by the kind okay, good. of conversations that I've been able to have, and that other people have been able to have with the board. I think that there are Amazing. definitely many people at the board who are very interested in these kinds of conversations so that's the first thing I would say and that's I think the very encouraging
2: that's um, sort of the sense I've had and I'm finding that a little bit exciting too but I just wanted to kind of get because I think you have much more insight into that
1: well that's so that's the encouraging you know first thing I would say the second thing I would say is I'm you know I'm I'm still involved in these studies where I'm reading a lot of board decisions. And one of the things I'm looking at right now is how social science evidence is taken up in decisions. And that isn't happening yet. You know, we still don't have um a single piece of social scientific evidence in the standard document packages right so the board has hundreds of thousands of pages of country conditions yeah that's right and not a single piece of information to my knowledge about how people think where right? we don't that's have what a i'm finding disturbing okay. it is disturbing and not only that diana but i think and i have a student actually right now this week looking into this question but i to my knowledge the board in its own publications has cited exactly one social scientific source which is uh they cited traumatology in the soji guidelines for the earth-shattering proposition that some people with diverse soji have experienced trauma <laughs> so that that to my Better knowledge and that <laughs> again I, I i can't you know i can't say this for sure because i have a student verifying this right now but to yeah. my knowledge that is the word single <laughs> social scientific yeah source. um and so I don't remember that
2: from the Soji guideline, to be honest. I think so... it's in a
1: footnote. I think I think because I, I saw uh, it and you right. know the sun shone. But yes. my, you know, when I when I work with the board, when I talk with the board and decision makers, I mean, my big pitch and my fervent hope is that this evidence will get into the document center, that this will become part of the country Yes. Condition. Uh, like in the manner of the country conditions has become part of the standard packages, yes. especially since it's such a fraught topic The how many pages you can submit. Of sure. of so And I would say the lawyer.
2: chairperson's guidelines around persons who have um, um, faced domestic violence. I can't remember what it's called. Yeah, exactly, the, yeah. That sort of flirts with it Do, mm. But again, it's, to me, it's still not direct enough about like the, like the neuroscience behind it, you know, and it's, yeah. It's a little yeah. bit more just about like vulnerable persons and that kind of stuff but still not yeah. with the real appreciation for like the cognitive impairment component it's, and I don't mean impairment well, I just mean like in terms of like this stuff
1: about you
2: know the memory is a video recording kind of stuff yeah
1: so you know here, here's the thing I you know there's a vast trauma literature right as as you know right yeah. there's a large trauma literature and special is sp- uh, specifically around traumatic memory mm. when i started doing the memory research the the paper that i have on on memory is looking very specifically at non-traumatic memory. So right. I set out to look at non-pathological, everyday, ordinary memory. And the reason I did that was because I had experiences of coming into hearings with clearly traumatized clients uh, who couldn't remember their dates, for example. And I would say, well, this person is very traumatized. They have trouble with their memory. Here's you know, some papers on tr- memory and trauma. And the board members would say, Oh, well, hold on, client. You know, client, hold on, counsel. You're putting the cart before the horse. Uh, Because they don't believe their dates, I don't believe their story. So I don't believe it happened. So I don't believe they're traumatized. Therefore, your evidence is irrelevant. And about half of the federal court doesn't see anything wrong with that reasoning. Like
2: an Escher drawing.
1: Right. So Mm. my point, I would come in then with the everyday memory literature and say, Uh. I'm not asking you to find that the client is traumatized and therefore can't remember her rape in detail. I'm asking you to recognize that you can't tell me what you did on the weekend with the level of detail and consistency that you expect from my client when she tells you about her rape three years ago. Right. Right. So, um, Amazing. right. Well, so that that clever. was, well, that was sort of the, that was sort of the dodge, you know, and when I yeah. started pulling the research together, I'll be totally honest. I had the fairly cynical impression at that point as a young lawyer that, The good members didn't need it and the bad members wouldn't care, but I was going to come into a hearing with 500 pages of social science, put it down on the table and say, if you want to find that this person is lying, you're going to have to go through this. Wow. And my sense was that, like water flowing downhill, the members who really wanted to say no would say no, but it would divert them to state protection or, you know, IFA or something else that I'd rather be arguing about on, sure. on, on judicial review. Yes. But what I discovered, to, you know, to my delight was that, in fact, there were a large number of members in the middle who really were interested, who were interested, um, who were challenged, but who were engaged and who, you know, were really struggling with how to do this well. Uh, and you know, they, they were left some of them with those feelings of, well, what do you want me to do? But they, they were interested. Um, So that's, you know, and that's been now many years of having these kinds of conversations with decision-makers here and, and in other countries, you know, I I talk with decision-makers in many places about these kinds of questions. And
0: I think it's it's a useful like exercise for anyone. Like I would think anyone would be interested in just learning how, they may be approaching things in a way that might not be eliciting the truth or they may have unconscious bias. Everything from like those studies about how the length of a sentence can be dictated by the proximity to lunch versus (laughs) even like in my own um, (laughs) practice I remember meeting with someone um, who had come in because they wanted to submit a uh, LGBT-based common law partnership application And after me chatting with them for about half an hour, asking questions about their background, I actually left the consultation room thinking, okay, I'm not convinced that uh, these people are actually in a relationship. It seems more like they're roommates to me. And one of the, um, I can't remember if the person was an articling student or an associate at the time, I asked her, okay, well, do you want to chat with them maybe and, you know, like this will be a good opportunity to learn a uh just how to interact with clients and do intake. And they completely opened up to her in a way that they didn't with me. And they were all of a sudden, you know, they were looking at like grinder photos and <laughs> discussing their relationship in a level of like detail that was completely different from what I had. Hmm. And when I asked there I was like, how come you didn't tell me any of that stuff? They just said honestly you didn't like um it just we felt more comfortable with. Uh,
1: yeah,
0: I don't want to name the person in case she doesn't want to be named. But with the other, uh, with the other lawyer, mm-hmm. and it was a real eye-opening like moment for me to say, okay, um, you know, they had even paid to come in for a consult where, in theory, they would be like, you know, they'd spend money presumably to tell me everything. Right. they couldn't, yeah. they didn't feel for whatever reason that they could, and yeah. how that would manifest itself, like. God knows if you're going into an RPD yeah. hearing or a CBSA interview. Um, and just like that moment was very grounding for me. And I well, think for but it's for cool other... that you jive
2: to it. At some level, you kind of figured out that like absenting yourself from that room was actually going to serve the best interest of that consultation. Oh, yeah. I think that it takes, like, a, takes a certain person to be like, I think I'm actually standing in the way of yeah. this actually being...
0: But I would assume that man- that must manifest itself, like, especially at RPD hearings, where I think it's detailed, like, you're about those cases where a case is going really bad for someone and someone has this moment where they stand up and reveal their scar. Um, and just all these different ways, though, like, where an individual board member's demeanor might be what prevents a refugee claimant from giving their full claim. Or even yeah. just the look. For me, I was just told, oh, you just looked like you did, like, I don't know what look I was giving or... Um, yeah I wanted to ask if it was the short buzz cut at the time and (laughs) just what it was Um, but just to have that I don't know how you address for that in these like in a broader sense but to have moments like that where it's brought to your attention can completely change perspective and like a third party academic in this case going in and asking questions going over studies um, could have a similar impact maybe And that's also where the whole, like, I don't know if there was ever a case where there was like refugee hearings with two people, possibly at different times or in different settings or in a less formal setting than what you see in a refugee claim. um, But it happens also
2: often with like an interpreter and there's an interpreter who gives a different vibe or, you know, and so sometimes hearings do get recessed because, you know, and it, you know, if counsel can... Be perceptive to the fact that there's, you know, there's a different feeling in the room, and that there's something standing in the way of that person giving their claim um, in a in a candid way. Um, there are challenges. I mean, I think that, but again, it 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 requires a system that's very
1: receptive to that kind of, um, those kind of barriers. Yeah. yeah. You know, coming back to your point, Jan, about the trauma literature and sort of being trauma informed, and I think there there are definitely good things about the uh, Vulnerable Claimants Guideline, but I think one of of the things that frustrates me about it is that it's called the Vulnerable Claimants Guideline and not the Severely Vulnerable Claimants Guideline, Mm -hmm. because because when you go on to read it, right, when you go on to read it, it is in fact limited to severely vulnerable claimants. So it goes on to say, um, you know, we recognize that everybody's vulnerable, essentially, in this context. So we're only aiming this at the very vulnerable. But then that becomes what vulnerable means, and everybody else is no longer
2: vulnerable. Right. Exactly. Right?
1: So now it's just it's shifted the goalposts. So the conversations about who should get special kinds of considerations because they're vulnerable—you don't get yeah. them if you're vulnerable. Now you only get them if you're severely vulnerable. Yes.
0: Um, oh, no,
1: it's a it's
2: else. a it's a brilliant point because really, why is that not the baseline standard? It's
1: the baseline,
0: yeah. yeah. Now, yeah, what about it really has, any, be. has anyone discussed with you the notion of like the this person hired this representative, and this representative is known to be involved in false claims? Therefore, I just assume that if someone hires this representative, mm. that there must be a reason for it. And it comes to mind there was recently someone
1: um
0: suspended from appearing both before the RPD and I think the ICCR is now, ICCRC has now suspended them because they were they thought they were texting their client during a hearing coaching and it turns out they were texting the RPD so there was hmm. undeniable evidence of uh, witness <laughs> coaching going on uh. but does this now result like anytime a client of this individual appears did you ever have that in your conversations with board members where no, the representative that's... can result in a negative impression of the claimant
1: yeah no that's an interesting point I haven't I wonder if Sean has ever looked at that in his studies on on representation because he's, he's looked more carefully at the question of, of you know the impact of representation that's interesting
2: well let me just say that um, because there were some um, prominent refugee council locally who um, stopped practicing locally because of these decisions that Steve has mentioned. I have been contacted by many claimants who Mm. were connected to that person. Mm. And what I found really, really surprising is um, claimants who were often very poorly, poorly represented by counsel, but still are extremely protective of that person. And so again, and this goes back to trauma theory, is that there's often a like, look, um, this is what happened and I'm now, and often there are claims that like, many of them are claims that um, often wouldn't have even gone to a hearing because they were so patently, um, obviously going to be meritorious, Mm -hmm. Um, but, incorrect things being put in for absolutely no good reason and so um, they often could be sorted out and just approved even without a hearing um, through the the fact tracking process but still um, people being very like wouldn't want to tell me who the name of the council was because they were afraid that that person would face further consequences and so again it goes to this um, I can't remember which one of the six ideas it was, but, like, um, you know, that um, that it's just, I find, like, in terms of the, um, the sort of logicalness of, like, you know, safety first, but I think yeah. that there yeah. is this kind of tendency to kind of protect, and I think that mm-hmm. that is sometimes, like, Um, and not necessarily logical, but kind of instinctive reaction for someone who is in a vulnerable place and they've connected with somebody who's going to help them and all of that sort of thing, there's like that attachment. And so again, um, I think even if there were to be a negative conclusion drawn about the fact that that person was associated to draw Mm -hmm. conclusions about the value or the merit of their claim would be completely inappropriate. Mm -hmm. And to be fair, I think that the board has recognized that that would be an inappropriate aspersion to cast on the claimant because like um yeah so I think that there has been a fair amount of like recognition that that's like and again that's why I talk like and I I say this kind of colloquially this whole kind of like Stockholm syndrome kind of like um yeah you know thing that people just um somebody who has suffered trauma and is now coming and trying to get things um, settled for themselves. There's not like a t- tendency to be like vindictive. There's a real reluctance to point fingers at anybody who is like a, a right. negative actor. And so, um, but I thought that there was a fair bit of like sophistication and nuance in terms of how the board has reacted in those cases.
1: Yeah, no, that makes sense. I, it makes me think, actually, can I, my, my partner's about to drill outside the window. Can I <laughs> okay, just, of course. shut my window just one second? Yeah. Yes, of course. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, Deanna, that was, you know, it was just making me think when you were saying um, about that the board is is alert to the fact that they shouldn't be drawing inferences against the claimants in these circumstances. It made me think of one thing that is worrying to me, though, is that there was a precedential decision from the RAD, maybe about a year ago, about similar box. Which seems to be a sort of a similar issue, yes. and so the decision in that case—I don't know if you've—if you've read it—it I it, it wasn't—it didn't make a big splash, but the right. the the decision was saying essentially that where a board member uh, finds that the BOC is very similar to other box that have been submitted, that that finding displaces the presumption of credibility, <sighs> um, and that before they've heard the rest of the evidence, then they can go into the hearing without that presumption in place, um, and you know that that is just wrong i mean it's it's wrong yeah. because uh you know you can't displace that presumption until you've heard all the evidence right it, yeah. it is at the end of the day having heard all the evidence that you decide whether this presumption has been displaced and you can't reverse the presumption because you're not the court of appeal right? Right. so you can't displace it and you can't reverse it you, you know you have to let the hearing happen and then decide what to do with it it may be a very short hearing but you may decide that that's a very compelling piece of evidence um, that suggests that this, that there's no merit to the case, right? If the Absolutely. claimant can't substantiate why it's their own story. But you have to give them the chance to do that with that presumption in place. You know, I was isn't... chatting
0: with a uh, board member once who was talking about how they heard a very compelling story, granted the claim, and then they heard it again, <laughs> and then they heard it again, and then they heard by the third time, they're like, they're not even changing the addresses where this like occurred. So they start refusing, but it's like, well, how do you know which one was the copycat and which one was like nice. the other, like what if yeah. it was that fourth guy was the real person? Um, mm. And it's, yeah. but it's just one of those things where like the, and it just comes back to the, some of, and I don't know how you cure it within the system, but the human element, yeah, almost the luck of timing element and in in that type of situation.
2: Or the fact um, is they might all be- all, re- all real claims, but all with um, incorrect facts put on, f- on top of them. Yeah. And you know, I think that, um, again, the, this was sort of, this leads to me t- to, my, to my sort of my final big question, which was about um, sort of one of the 12 things that have helped, which is when you talk about admitting a lie and that's one that I really, really struggle with as mm-hmm. a because, uh, like, it seems like a bit of a quagmire because, yeah. um, because, and again, to me, this directly ties into in terms of six big ideas about safety at any cost because it's sort of like people that are genuinely fleeing danger, they do what they need to do to get safe, right? And so there's not always like a logical tie between like the means that people take to get safe, like people don't. And so I think that there's a layering on of this kind of Judeo Christian truth, you know, like, and so while I understand that, like, Canada expects everybody to know that Canada's fair, and that this is like, our expectations were clear, Canada's the best, you can be honest, (laughs) and we, you know, we're going to be good to you. But at the same time, when somebody is actually running away from a lion, do they stop (laughs) and think, I better be honest here? Or did they just think, okay, well, my consultant or my lawyer told me that this was the story that was going to get me away from the lion. And if they... Pick a bullshit story. Does that mean <laughs> that they don't have a real lion running after them? And so, like, so you know, when it comes to like being responsible counsel, do we get them to do this mea culpa and be like, right. "I'm so sorry"? Yeah. And so, I get really messed up in my head with like, how do we do responsible ethical <laughs> yeah. lawyering? It
0: doesn't. Just, uh, you know, it reminds me. I'm of so sorry. You red- know, <laughs> debate. I don't remember. I don't know if you remember, uh, Deanna at CBA. A few years ago, I think Peter Edelman have even sparked the debate by can you actually it doesn't apply so much in the refugee context, but in all the other streams, can you actually recommend to a client that they disclose a misrep or by doing that, even if it seems like, OK, it's better to disclose it, get it out of the way, address it. Are you instructing someone to commit an offense under IRPA by acknowledging that they've committed misrepresentation, which is an offense? Are you getting them to confess to something that oh, actually right. is an offense mm-hmm. such that they need independent legal advice? And the
2: But with with all due respect, I think it's different in the immigration context than it is in the refugee yeah. context. No, because and the misref provisions thing... are
0: different as well. In the yeah.
2: Yeah. But it's the same thing that we're talking about in terms of like one thing is about the civil standard and da-da-da. And there's like the honest proof, and that is on the claimant, and da 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 But now we're talking about this other arena where it's about international conventions and about the presumption of innocence and about like, and I understand that there's this thing, but like, I just have a hard time reconciling this, like, what about the social contract? And what about the international convention? And what about the fact that like, I understand you made a lie. But again, isn't this still supposed to be about the fact um, that Um, Like, there is no misrepresentation in this context. So I do get very, very confused and trying to figure out how to counsel about, you know, about this. I'm just interested in hearing what your comments are about this and how to do no harm in this
1: context. I mean, this is the one that really worried me too, as you can can tell on the site by the big disclaimer. (laughs) So it comes with a big exclamation mark disclaimer. Yeah, for sure. Look, you know, this is not a no downside risk. Like it's really not, because sometimes board members are going to be really upset about the fact that you've lied, and if you admit yeah. to a lie that they otherwise might not have caught, um, then you've walked right into it. Uh-huh. Um, but the it's it's a gamble strategically for a lawyer um, who you know if, if you if you're in if the decision that you have to make is do you refer them on to someone else because obviously you're not going to continue with them if you know that they are lying, right? So that's obviously a non-starter. But if you say to them, look, I can't continue with you, but what do I advise you to do? Do I advise you to go to somebody else, um, you know, and discuss it with them and decide what you want to do? Or do I advise you to go ahead and tell the board everything? Um, You know, my practice with my clients was to tell the board, was to tell my clients to tell the board, to come clean to the board. Yeah. uh, Because You know, on on mass, in balance, in the cases that I've seen, they're more likely, in those circumstances, to have a positive reaction from a board member who's going to understand that they've made a mistake, but they're coming forward and they're being honest. Yeah. Um, And... That's weighed against what happens when the board member discovers that themselves.
2: Yes, 100%. Um, Maybe an
1: entirely immaterial lie is now a huge deal because the board member found it out themselves and they feel very, you know, sort of proud of that. Um, But that doesn't mean that it was 100%. And there's, you know, one case that will stick in my craw till the day I die because uh, this woman did come forward with you know on my advice uh, and it was a it was unfortunately also layered on top of it was an interpretation error the board member said to her why did you do it and she said um, it was a I was desperate was what she said in Spanish I was desperate and the board member translated it as it was a moment of desperation and I heard it but I had a bit of a history with this translator I'd, or interpreter. I'd, you know, I'd sort of corrected him before he and I, I let it go. I didn't think it was a big deal. I should have stepped in and in the end the decision came down to you said it was a moment of desperation, but clearly this was the planned, you know, thought out uh, deception that you perpetrated on the board in submitting this fraudulent document um, and it was just all downhill from there. Right. So, you know, so my decision to advise her to, to be honest about the fact that the document was fraudulent combined with my decision to not correct the record on the interpretation um you know i'm gonna i you know i will never let that go because that was the end of that case so it is you know it's not a no downside risk obviously but, but it's something that i think claimants should think about when they're deciding and especially those claimants who have never felt good about the fact that they did deceive the board that they did they sent in a false document or they added something to their claim if they did it because they heard from their previous counsel or they heard in the community that it's something that you have to do and they're yeah. fundamentally honest people and they're walking into the hearing room with that cloud you know that sort of heavy weight um and i i don't know about you i mean i had many claimants who were you know sort of really quite profoundly religious this is back in the day when they would swear an oath Mm -hmm. Um, and I had claimants for whom swearing that oath was a really really big deal deal. right like a really big deal Um, and so that you know I think that knowing that there is a way out from under a previous lie that you've it you know mm-hmm. that's something that I wanted claimants to know and For I sure. wanted them to have that big exclamation mark caveat um, so that they recognize that there is a risk there and they do have to think strategically about what they're going to do with that um, you know as again as lawyers we don't you know our ethical obligations are clear clear uh, claimants you're running from the law lo- from the lion as you say yeah. um, you know that's you have your own decisions to make is my exactly opinion. and that comes
0: back to you don't know which uh, maxim or uh, Gary will have there with regards to you right you know, yeah to a lie yep.
2: and I think that also um, it does get I mean it's it might seem outwardly quite uncomplicated like well it's a document it's fraudulent and so the lie is clear but sometimes when you like just to problematize this thing when it's something like a soji claim, mm-hmm. And you know that board members have a certain notion of what coming out looks like. Mm -hmm. And so the lie was about like trying to present like a coming out narrative, the way that the board Likes, but that's not actually the accurate narrative, and so that's what was there in the book. And then they've come to you for a second opinion, and you're like, no, 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 I think you should take that back if that's not the reality, you know. And it's sort of like, even though you know that they want the coming out narrative, and if there wasn't, you know, and so like, you see, this is like the kind of thing that we talked about with Cheryl and Jordan, you know, and about you know that that there are certain fixed notions of how certain things are meant to look, and so sometimes those recommendations that to claimants early on, this is how to get away from the lion is based on the sort of like notions of what these overall biases are at the board. And so, you know, and so people are just trying to kind of fit into that. And so then, um, And so it's true it's you know it's like when i like to put it into the spousal context like when there's a you know a marriage between this is like what we talked about with raj steve you know like a marriage between two different castes so people pretend that there was a conversion that happened you know and there are things like this and it's like Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know and we we've seen lots of cases about this in both um sectors but again when you put it back into the refugee context with these Um, These untruths are to try and conform to what is expected of refugee claimants, of true persecution, you know, and so again, it does get very layered. Um, yeah, yeah yeah and i think and so, I like mean, i can't promise you like you're right they are going to prefer if this was this religion or this um coming out story or something like this and so yeah. however we yeah. think you're going to testify better if you're going to do um your true story because you know and so um but it's it's a really challenging conversation and it's just for me that the challenge really is not about whether or not this would be the advice from the lawyer but just about also because of the trauma theory about trying to get somebody to go into this hearing in that kind of hat in hand kind of demeanor. It's so, it's so challenging, you know?
1: Right. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I I think you've probably had this happen many times with your clients as well, but the, the, the hardest cases, the cases where people had very strong claims and mm. then felt that they had to add to them, yes. because they're very strong. Because they're desperate and terrified. They're, and they're very so strong. terrified, strong enough. Yeah. you know. And those are the ones that you know when you watch that unravel. You know, if you're in a hearing and things start to fall apart, and you realize there was a solid core of For a sure. here, and it's the add-ons. That are going to end up tanking it and it's just you know that is so it's so profoundly tragic
2: it is because almost like the more legitimate the fear yeah. the more compelling the need to try and um, that's a good point amplify yeah. because the fear is just so great that like yeah. that is actually safety at all cost right, mm-hmm.
0: right. yes yeah. run from the lion, but don't step on any plants is the ideal what people yeah wanna exactly
2: eat. be very careful <laughs> because our expectations are clear <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, this has been uh, really good. Um, huh. And we will post the uh, Meet Gary uh, website in the show. Uh-huh. Notes, I do think that there's a lot that across streams, um, people can learn both, I guess, if they're the claimant or the applicant themselves, as well as what people who are representing others should consider. Mm -hmm.
2: definitely yeah definitely commend this um this site to anybody council and claimants alike awesome excellent thank you yeah Yeah, thank
1: you so much for so much time no thank you very much for having me i'm you know at the risk of sucking up to the hosts i love you guys (laughs) this is such a great (laughs) podcast thank you so much for doing this